Please remain standing and grab your copy of God's Word. I will be reading the sermon text this morning. It is Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and acts, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would bow your head and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so weak. Our minds so finite, our affections so cold, our wills so corrupt. And you are none of these. God, you are mighty, infinite in wisdom and knowledge, full of unending love, and holy and righteous in all that you do. God, we ask that you would help us to receive your authoritative, infallible word to give light to our frail and forgetful minds, to soften our hearts, to warm our souls, to worship you rightly. Father, may only what you have to say for your people be heard and everything else forgotten. Pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. I got out of the car this morning, got in the door to get in the back seat, grabbed my suit jacket, and realized that there were pants inside of there. And I was wearing pants. (laughs) So I look down and I see the pants that I'm wearing do not match 
the suit jacket because those pants are inside. Now, thankfully, I did have the pants to put on, but it, it illustrated something that was important, that matching matters, right? The, the pants I'm wearing need to match the suit jacket that I'm wearing. But more importantly, what we feel in our heart needs to match what we know in our head. How often does your head align with what's in your heart? Do you, does what you know match what you feel? For example, you might know in your head that a second bowl of ice cream might not add much benefit to your health or even give you much more satisfaction, but your heart says, go for it. Parents, you know in your head that every little thing you do for your children is seen and matters. But your heart tells you, why bother? No one sees. No one cares. Children, you often know in your head that you should obey and trust your parents. But your heart is often cold and stubborn and resistant. Christian, you know in your head that God raised Jesus from the grave. Praise God. But when you look at the world around us, you feel that God is powerless over evil. Beloved, you know in your head that God is worthy of praise, but your heart often says, I don't feel like it right now. And that's what this psalm is for. It is a plain truth that what we know and what we feel do not always match, and the Christian will always have this battle in our life with apathy. So if you know the Lord with your mind and desire your affections to follow, This psalm is for you, feeding your heart with the truths of God's love. If you do not know God, but you're curious about who he is, this psalm is for you answering the question, how can God save a sinner like me? And if you are here this morning just full of joy for what the Lord has done, praise God. This psalm is also for you giving words to the music of your worship. As Chuck described in the intro to this sermon series, each one of the Psalms are little Bibles. They teach us proper doctrine of God and man, revealing the holiness of God, the true character of man, and how man should respond in fitting praise to what God has done. And most Psalms are best applied only to certain circumstances. For example, you wouldn't sing a song of praise and thanksgiving at a funeral. Or you wouldn't pray a a song of imprecatory justice on God's enemies as you're confessing your sins. But this psalm is applicable all the time, every day. We We would do well to read it, pray it, and sing it every day of our lives. Because God's love and his salvation is always there. And we always need it to warm our hearts, to be affectionately worshipful of him. Charles Spurgeon writes of Psalm 103, There is too much in this psalm for a thousand pens to write, and it is one of those all-comprehending scriptures, which is a Bible in itself. And it might alone almost suffice for the hymn book of the church. So this morning we are not going to comprehensively study all that God speaks to us through his word in Psalm 103. But we are going to examine one particular attribute of God. We could examine many. Many of the attributes displayed within the psalm 
that David, the psalmist, uses to stir up his soul to worship God. But we will focus in on the sweetest perfection of God's character, his love. Thomas Watson writes, using the words mercy and love interchangeably. He says, Mercy sweetens all God's other attributes. God's holiness without mercy and his justice without mercy were terrible. How bitter and dreadful were the other attributes of God. Did not mercy sweeten them? Mercy sets God's power on work to help us, and it makes its justice become our friend. So even still, examining God's love within this psalm is still too vast an ocean to search. Frederick Lehman beautifully describes the grandeur of God's love in the last verse of his hymn, aptly titled, The Love of God. He writes, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, and were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. I can wholeheartedly agree with Lehman. Um, As I was picking a psalm to preach on, I thought Psalm 103 will be great. Preparation should be a piece of cake. The theme is evident, God's salvation, his love. I know it it well. And about a weekend, I I was over my head. I tell you truthfully, I have never been more overwhelmed. Taking on this task of capturing God's endless, immaculate love is like compressing the entire atmosphere of earth into a scuba tank. Impossible. So why even bother at all? Why are we here this morning? Though we may never comprehend fully the love of God or any of his character, we may absolutely know it. So that's what we'll do. To narrow the scope of our study a bit further, I will draw on the wisdom of Puritan John Owen, who writes, The Father communicates no issue of his love to us except through Christ. So the focus of our study, this sermon, will be the saving love of God delivered to us through Christ. So let's establish an outline and get moving through the psalm. Psalm 103 is chiastic in nature. It's a poetic a tool used in Hebrew poetry that basically makes a sandwich. So you have the the bread on the outside, on the top, bread on the bottom, and meat in the middle. And it is a mirror where the the first half resembles a mirror image of the second half. So we will begin and end with a call to worship. So opening call to worship, closing call to worship. And in the middle, in the meat of the sandwich, we will see five aspects of God's saving love in Christ. Let's begin by reading verse 1 and 2 again to see the opening call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Something to keep in mind as we're reading this psalm is the audience. The audience that the psalmist is speaking to is constantly expanding. He begins with his self in verses 1 through 5. You see singular yous. The psalmist is addressing his very soul. This then expands in verse 6 through 19 to all of God's people. And then in verse 20 through 21, 
It expands to the angels. And finally, in verse 22, it's all of creation. And then back to self at the very end. So here in verse 1 through 2, when the psalmist is speaking to himself, he addresses his very soul, demanding two things, that he would bless the Lord and that he would forget not all his benefits. He recognizes that God is worthy of praise of all that is within him, and that is not the present reality that he feels. Do you resonate with that? The psalmist is calling himself, and by extension, all of God's people, not to hollow lip service, but worship from the soul. As Zach preached last week from Psalm 78, God cares more about the posture of our hearts than what we say and what we do. And this psalm is a call to blessing the God who is all in all with all that is within us. Every faculty of your soul, your mind, what you know, your affections, what you feel, and your will, what drives you to act. But what does it really mean to bless the Lord? We often hear that phrase thrown around. It's not just cliche, it it really means something. Tim preached a few weeks ago on what it means to be blessed by God, that true blessedness is receiving God's mercy and his grace, forgiveness of sins, and Christ's imputed righteousness. But blessing the Lord is something entirely different. When we are blessed by the Lord, we receive the riches of his grace, which changes our lives for eternity. When we bless the Lord, we add absolutely nothing to him. He is completely satisfied in himself, apart from anything we offer, and is unchanged from eternity past until forevermore. God is totally self-sufficient, and he requires nothing of us, yet his glory demands all that is within us to worship him, and that is where we are most satisfied. As children can be a blessing to their parents without offering to them any tangible provision or care, we can still bless the Lord without adding anything to him. John Piper defines it this way. To bless God means to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. Psalm 104 succinctly summarizes blessing the Lord in one simple phrase, my God, you are very great. So blessing the Lord means to worship him, to place God in the highest position of value in your life. Blessing the Lord is so important to David that he repeats himself. He says in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. This is not just redundant words. Every every word in Scripture has meaning and value and is there for a reason. So this repetition is indicating that value, that importance of blessing the Lord. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We clearly established last week from Psalm 78 that remembrance is a vital practice and we are forgetful people. Remembrance keeps us from falling into the failures of the past And here we see another benefit of remembrance. It blesses the Lord. So we have the ability to bless the Lord just in the act of remembrance and remembering all of God's character, who he is, what he has done, but also recalling who God is and what he has done 
stirs up our souls to gratitude and delight in who God is. When we forget not all his benefits, as David writes, we recognize his richness, strength, and gracious bounty of love that he has poured out upon us. With this line, David is also introducing the next part of the psalm where he will recount the benefits of God's salvation. And as the heat of the afternoon Colorado sunshine melts away the morning snow, so God's love in Christ melts the cold, sinful heart into warm, affectionate worship of our Lord. Nothing, nothing stirs up our worship, our affections, to love and bless the Lord like his perfect love for us. So this brings us to point one. God's saving love is complete. We'll read from verses three through five. Actually, we'll continue with verse two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Verse 3, the psalmist writes, God, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. The first and greatest benefit that David proclaims is God's forgiveness. And it's no wonder this is first on his list, as without forgiveness of sin, no one can draw near to God to receive any other benefit. If you desire anything good from the Lord, to know him, to be healed inside and out, you must receive first his perfect forgiveness. There is no sin too grievous or heap of sin too high that God cannot forgive if you come to him for mercy. Verse 4, the psalmist continues, Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This shows the complete love of God redeeming us out of the pit and crowning us with steadfast love and mercy. It echoes Psalm 40, verse 2. The psalmist writes, speaking of God's salvation, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. It just sounds gross, doesn't it? And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Beloved, God brings us out of darkness and into light, out of the pit and into a life of steadfast love and mercy. His love and redemption leave nothing undone for us to complete. He simply does it all. There are two aspects to consider here, his mercy and his grace. God doesn't just forgive us, showing his mercy, canceling the debt we owed, and he doesn't just show us grace, crowning us with his love and satisfying us with good. If God only forgave us and left us on our own, to live life that is pleasing to him, we would quickly return back to our miry pit of destruction. And if God only showed us his grace, satisfying us with his righteousness, but only after we cleaned ourselves up first and climbed out of the pit, we'd also be helpless. Because the pit we are in is beyond our capability to climb out. 
We need a saving love that takes us from death to life completely. No halfway healing. Our God reaches to the lowest hell and brings us above the highest stars. For this vast space cannot contain the greatness of God's saving love for his people. Jesus, our Savior, left his heavenly throne and humbled himself to be born as a man in this sin-cursed world that he might save us, his beloved, from the pit. God didn't throw a line down from above, but climbed down into the pit himself. And after pulling us out, Jesus washes us clean and presents us to the Father with his perfect robes of righteousness. And when Christ returns in glory to destroy death, all those who he has saved will reign with him in glory. This is complete love, forgiving sin, bestowing righteousness that leads to glory. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Beloved, it is all done. God does all the work from beginning to end. What about the part where David speaks of healing of diseases? Remember the structure of this psalm. David is still addressing himself here. And almost all commentators agree that David is talking about a personal example of physical healing. Yes, God does heal the disease of our heart, sin. But for David, God forgave his sin, crowned him with love and mercy, which paralleled the physical healing of the disease. This disease was most likely related to an out, as an outward consequence of inward sin. And we see this, we can draw a connection to Psalm 32 and 38. This is not a promise that here on earth, God will heal every bodily sickness and rejuvenate to the strength of eagles, all those he loves. He does promise that for eternity in heaven with him, but not for here and now, for all of us. God really did heal David from this disease and restore him back to health. And I am not denying that God has this ability today. But for the purpose of this psalm, it is an illustration showing us a picture of the complete healing of sin that God promises to all who trust in him by faith, from sickness and disease to youthful, rejuvenated energy. So in summary, God's saving love is complete. He can redeem your life from the pit of sin and death and crown you with love and mercy forever. Let's keep reading verse 6 and 7 to see point 2, that God's saving love is demonstrated. God's saving love is demonstrated. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Our God does not just talk of his love like a fancy sports car sitting in a garage, but he takes it out and thrills us. He shows us his love and his powerful salvation. Specifically, verse 6 through 7 refer to the Exodus, God saving his people out of slavery into the promised land. God demonstrated his love to his people by acting on their behalf and saving them from Egyptian oppression. However, his ways made known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel, 
are just a shadow of what was to come. We know with the New Testament that the Exodus was pointing towards something greater. As great as it was, it was not the climax of God's story with his people. Jesus speaks of the Exodus himself at the Transfiguration in Luke 9, 28 through 36. Turn there with me. Luke 9, 28 through 36. We will read 28 through 31. Now about eight days after saying, after these sayings, he, that is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So depending on what version of the Bible you have, um, you may see a, a note next to that word departure saying that it's the same, work as the same word as the Greek word for exodus. So Jesus is speaking, believe it or not, to Moses himself about the exodus. That's pretty cool. The exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus is speaking of the cross where he would save his people from slavery to sin and death, to rest forever in the promised land riches of his grace. God's most, explicit and, God's most explicit and grand demonstration of his love was the cross. And as we learn from our two ways to live curriculum, that just dying for someone to prove your love is crazy, right? If you're just walking with your friend on the sidewalk and you say, I love you, and you jump out into traffic, like, you think they're crazy. That's ludicrous. So it's not just the death of Christ, but what he accomplished by it and why he did it. Jesus accomplished what we could never do, paying the debt of his people's sin so that all of the iniquity and sin of every person who trusts in him is now forgiven. And when he who knew no sin became sin for our sake, we also became the righteousness of God. The cross is the great exchange whereby the perfect Holy One was crushed and those under sin and slavery received life forevermore. You cannot deny that God's saving love has been demonstrated to us at the cross. So verse 7 says that God made known his ways to Moses and his people. What specifically was God revealing about himself through the exodus and furthermore, the cross. He was revealing what we'll go to next in point three, that God's saving love is merciful. We'll be reading from verses 8 through 14. And we'll spend the majority of our time here as this is considered the heart of the psalm. In Hebrew chiastic poetry or any writing that uses the, the, the literary um, tool of chiasm, the main point is most often at the center. What we read from our assurance of pardon from Lamentations, that is the very center of the book of Lamentations. That is the heart of that, that book. And so we'll see here, these next few verses are the heart of Psalm 103, the main point. 
if all the other, other toppings on the sandwich are lettuce and tomato, this is the bacon. Let's dig in. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Verse 8, you may recognize as a direct quotation of Exodus 34. Again, making connection between the Exodus and God's dealing with Moses and our salvation. So turn with me to Exodus 34 and we'll read verses 6 through 7. This is where God reveals himself to Moses right before renewing his covenant with his people. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So looking at this, this text, these two verses here, depending on how you count, there are six descriptions of God's mercy and two of his justice. This depicts that God is primarily a God of mercy and compassion, yet never compromises his justice. So God is saying in Exodus 34, 7, that He will by no means clear the guilty. But Psalm 103, verse 10, turn back there. Psalm 103, verse 10 says, He does not deal with us, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. How can that be? That seems seems like there's there's a disconnect there. But let's keep reading back in Psalm 103 to see how the Lord can accomplish this great feat. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. So this word for is a word of causal relation. What comes after it is the cause, and what comes before it is the effect. So the effect is that God does not deal with us according to, his, to our sins, and the cause is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. So it, is stead, God, so it is God's steadfast love that keeps those who fear him from the ruin they deserve. But let's dig a little deeper into what is meant by steadfast love. The Hebrew word used here is hesed, which means steadfast love, mercy, Loving kindness, devotion, loyalty, 
and covenant faithfulness. God's steadfast love means he is faithful to the covenant and loyally devoted to his people. So the reason that God does not always chide and does not keep his anger forever and does not deal with us according to our sins and does not repay us according to our iniquities is because of his hesed. God's mercy toward his people is rooted in his faithfulness to his covenants. God's merciful love is not arbitrary or flippant. It is not God's response to our sin. It has been planned from eternity past. So let's examine quickly God's faithfulness to his covenants with man. Yes, God was faithful to punish Adam and all of humanity to death for disobedience in the covenant of works. Yes, God was faithful to judge his people according to his perfect law set forth in the Mosaic covenant. But he has also been faithful to never again destroy all of earth's inhabitants according to the covenant with Noah, to establish a people for himself from the line of Abraham that God promised him, to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head according to the covenant of grace, to raise up a son of David to rule God's people forever as he promised King David, to put his law on on our hearts, making us his people and he our God by the blood of Christ under the new covenant, and to eternally secure a people for himself under the covenant of redemption. It's pretty amazing to see God's covenant faithfulness to his people, how he never breaks a promise or goes back on his word. Now get this, God is so faithful to his covenant that he not only fulfills his part, but ours. Christ fulfilled the Mosaic covenant for us by his perfect obedience to the law as a man so that he might deliver his perfect righteousness to us apart from the law. Also in our place, Christ received the curse of the law, death, and complete wrath of God. So when Jesus uttered the words, it is finished on the cross, he really did atone for the sins of his people, removing them, as verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west. So that is why God cannot repay us according to our sins. God does not deal with us, his people, according to our sins because he dealt with Christ according to our sins. The debt has forever been cleared from our account. And this is just amazing mercy that God has displayed through the life and death of Christ Jesus. Additionally, this mercy is not an afterthought. Look again with me at verses 13 through 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. God knows us as we are. Weak, sinful, prone to wander, stubborn, full of pride, desiring to please ourselves that we could never earn our way back to God by finding life in obedience to the law. When God breathed life into man that he formed from dust, the covenant of redemption had already been sealed. Our salvation through the cross was not an afterthought or even plan B after the law did not bring us life. God's law was never meant to bring life but to lead us to put our hope in Christ alone. Mercy was planned 
even before the first sin. It was decreed from before the beginning. Church, the Lord knows how prone our hearts are to wander. You know what you're made of. God knows what you're made of. So don't pretend to be anything else. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you are apathetic toward God and his word, when you don't feel in your heart what you know in your mind, don't be ashamed. Don't let that guilt overwhelm you. But act on it, like the psalmist. And warm your heart by the fire of God's love. God loves to show compassion to his children, both to save you and draw you back into communion with himself. So in summary, God has shown us his merciful, saving love by securing our redemption from eternity past and faithfully purchasing it by the blood of Christ under the new covenant. Does it end there? Let's continue to see point four. That God's saving love is everlasting. God's saving love is everlasting. Verse 15 through 19. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Look again with me at verse 17 through 18. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. His steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness has never failed and it never will. The psalmist contrasts this everlasting nature of God's love with the fleeting nature of man. The life of man on earth is fleeting like the flower of the field, beautiful in its time, but quickly fading away. You and I, we all had a beginning of our life at conception. And we will all have an end of life as we know it here on earth when we die. But on the contrary, God's perfect steadfast love is, was established everlasting ago. There is no origin to everlasting. And it extends to everlasting. There is no end to his everlasting love. Like his throne in heaven Symbolizing God's reign over everything, everywhere. God's saving love has been established, and not even the gates of hell, all the powers of evil and darkness can prevail against his throne and his kingdom. Once you are grafted into Christ by faith, nothing can separate you from or take away God's saving love in Christ to you. So while God's love is unlimited in power and everlasting in extent, The object of his saving love is limited. It is not applied to everyone. So let's continue to see point five, that God's saving love is limited. 
God does not give the free gift of salvation to all, but only to those who are his people, who God calls to himself. And the only way we can receive this saving, redeeming love of God, according to this text, is by fearing God and keeping keeping covenant with him. And then we are marked as God's people by doing his commandments. These are the three descriptors that we'll see here. First, fearing God. Look at verse 11. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love, is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And verse 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So using Ryan's definition from our series in Ecclesiastes, fearing God means to have your soul possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. This involves both having a healthy dread of God's justice and wrath against all sin, his greatness, and a reverent love in response to the gospel. God's saving love, his goodness. The second descriptor of God's people, keeping covenant. Look at verse 18. The steadfast love of the Lord from everlasting to everlasting is to those who keep his covenant. Specifically for us to keep covenant with God as we are part of the new covenant. It means believing in your heart that Jesus, the divine son of God, paid the debt for your sins gives you his righteousness, and secures eternal life with God. You take part in that covenant by faith and faith alone in what God has done. And lastly, the third description, also in verse 18. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. God's people are marked by their obedience, not as a condition of salvation, but evidence thereof. If these three descriptions apply to you, then God has drawn you out of the pit of destruction and sin and crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. You are forgiven and redeemed, being sanctified and in time glorified. If these descriptions don't apply to you, I urge you to start with number one, fearing God. Consider the greatness and goodness of God in Christ as revealed in Scripture, His Word. And study that. Meditate upon it. So to summarize the meat of the sandwich, the psalmist has blessed the Lord for His saving love. Love that completely saves the sinner from death to eternal life. Love that is demonstrated most perfectly at the cross. Love that is merciful and covenantly faithful according to God's divine decree. Love that is everlasting, according to the eternal spring from which it flows. And lastly, love that is limited, exclusively applied to God's people, his sheep who he calls. After all this, he concludes with an additional series of calls to worship. So let's pick back up in verse 20 through 22 and see the concluding call to worship. 
Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We see here that God's dominion and love goes out to all his creation. We see a trinity of calls to our triune God. The psalmist's remembrance of of God's love has filled up his own soul to bless the Lord. The call has been extended out to God's people. And still, he has come to the conclusion that even more worship is fitting. All the worship of your entire being. And even more, all the worship of an entire race is not enough for our king. The psalmist calls for all the heavenly hosts and all of creation to worship God. We see the angels, that they have a unique ability to worship God by their perfect obedience. The psalmist highlights that they are the mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. His ministers who do his will. So the angels have a special ability to to worship God and bless him by their perfect obedience. But so do we. Note the benefit that God has demonstrated to us that the angels have never experienced. What we've been talking about today. God's mercy and forgiveness. Did Jesus become an angel to save the fallen angels? No. But he has humbled himself to be a man, to be made of dust, and to save men. He has taken on flesh and bone to become human, not just living among us, but dying the death that we earned by breaking covenant with God and delivering to us the free gift of eternal life, us alone. Christ has fully demonstrated the complete, everlasting, merciful, covenantal love of God for his people. And it's no wonder that Peter, in speaking of our salvation, describes the good news of the gospel in 1 Peter 1.12 as things into which angels long to look. Our salvation is something that the angels marvel at. And this demonstration of God's redeeming love is cause for the angels to praise God for the rest of eternity. And they're just onlookers, right? They're spectators. They're in the stands. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a privilege it is to be saved by God. No other creature, no other creature can personally know the redeeming love of God like us. Church, you are the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ, his beloved. And might we say with the bride in Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Behold your bridegroom, your redeemer, your savior. He is the lamb who was slain, willingly suffering the wrath of God that your sins deserve. He is the Lion of Judah, conquering sin and death for you. 
Beloved, we get to bless his name and worship him for eternity. No other creature is saved by God. If you fear God and place your faith in Christ, your soul has been saved by God, the one whose throne is in the heavens and whose king, kingdom reigns over all. This God, our God, has done all this for his glory and our good. So let us bless him. He who is the fountain of all blessings is most blessed. So hold nothing back as you think, sing, speak, meditate, and act to declare the greatness of our God. He is worthy of all power and glory and honor. Amen. And after all this, the psalmist returns to the opening line, Bless the Lord, O my soul. How do you feel now in your soul as compared to when you woke up this morning? Or even in comparison to when we first read the opening call to worship. How do you feel? I ask this question not to shovel guilt upon you for any lacking affection, but to reveal the power of God's word to soften our hearts and equip our souls to praise him rightly. So church, I exhort you to use this text, Psalm 103, as a weapon against apathy. Place it in your toolbox. When you notice that your love for Christ is cold, bring out this psalm to shine light on what God has done for you, saving your life from the pit, crowning you with steadfast love and mercy. And as the light of the sun also brings heat, so will the truth of salvation light everything that is within you aflame with love for Christ. To worship God and to call others to join in the chorus. There is so much here that we haven't even scratched the surface of. And here are four quick prompts to further your study of Psalm 103. One, consider the depths of the pit, the misery and agony of life apart from God, to magnify what God can save or has saved you from. Two, meditate on the removal of your sin as far as the east is from the west. Maybe even take a family road trip across the country. Just get, a, just get a tiny slice of that distance. Let the complete forgiveness of God, which fixes your standing before him, free you from the ups and downs of guilt and shame. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Three, ponder what it means that the Lord knows what you're made of. He knows your sins, weaknesses, insecurities, and failings. And like a compassionate father, he pours out his mercy. Because of the cross, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but only fatherly love. And lastly, fourth, look up at the stars on a dark night. Verse 11 tells us, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Look at the stars and see the heights of the heavens, how wide deep, and vast, the sky before you. Even this endless expanse cannot compare to the depths of God's love for those who fear him. So beloved, don't be ashamed. 
Don't be ashamed when what you know and what you feel don't match up. But be encouraged, like David, to call yourself to worship, to bless the Lord with your soul by remembering his saving love. And as a closing encouragement, I just want to remind you all that there will be a day when we are no longer hindered by indwelling sin. When our hearts won't be distracted by just what's apparent and in front of our faces, by busyness consumed with lesser things, when with glorified bodies, hearts, and minds, we can truly worship our Savior Jesus Christ face to face, unhindered with all that is within us. Yahweh will be our God and we will be his people forever and ever and ever unto eternity. But even then, we will still be uncovering what is the breadth and length and height and depth of love of God in Christ. So let us now and forevermore bless the Lord for his saving love. Please pray with me. Holy God, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. You are righteous and good in all that you do. And we praise you for who you are in and of yourself. But this morning, Lord, we specifically praise you for loving us, for making us the object of your affection. Lord, by your new covenant in the blood of Christ, you freely offer to draw us out of the muddy pit of destruction and sin that we have made for ourselves. And you clothe us with your, with your righteousness. Lord, may every person in this room hear your call, come to you by faith, and receive your compassionate, merciful, saving love. Lord, for those here who have already put their trust in you, help us to run this race with endurance to put aside every weight and sin which clings so closely that nothing would hinder us from blessing you, your holy name, with all that is within us. Lord, make us people who rely on your word to shine light on the saving love you have poured out through Christ and cause us to grow in love for you, God. Oh, Lord, you are very great. We bless you and pray all of this by the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.